Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Annu Nieminen, who is the founder and CEO of The Upright Project, a technology company building a new type of AI-enabled qualification model that measures the net impact of companies across environment, health, society, and knowledge. Anu is an experienced systems engineer and leads a team of 40 data scientists and other experts in Upright's mission to create concrete incentives for companies to optimize their net impact by enabling science-based decision-making, both for investors, customers, as well as for employees. Prior to founding Upright, Anu was a consultant at McKinsey & Company. The Upright Project is headquartered in Helsinki, Finland, and the company has raised about $5 million in seed funding in December 2022, led by German-based green tech VC Planet A Ventures. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation and talking to Anu about her journey into entrepreneurship and into sustainability, as well as asking her about brand building and how that differs in the sustainability space. So let's get started. Hello, Anu. Welcome. Hi, thanks for a lot for having me. Great to be here. So I know from talking to you earlier that you actually started off in classical music. You were a classical musician for almost 20 years. Tell me a little bit about how you went from being a classical musician, a classical conductor, to now having the startup. How did that all happen? <laughs> I wouldn't call myself a professional musician. That was mainly me being a kid and being completely obsessed with classical music. But it is true that for the first 20 years of my life, classical music was number one thing for me and the thing that mattered the most and the thing with which I spent the most hours every day. I, I guess if you look at it from the beginning, ever since I was a kid, I felt that music and art in general was just the best way to save the world. I saw that art as the number one vehicle for helping people overcome misunderstandings and helping them see what is what draws us together rather than tears us apart and I was very passionate about saving the world with music Uh, I played the oboe that was my instrument I was really obsessed with understanding many aspects of classical music but at the same time I also had a little secret crush on the side which was mathematics and I always felt that music and numbers lived in the same part of my head and that part was my favorite part then in high school when I really needed to start to think about direction for my life I started to rebel against myself and felt that I want to really go into something I know nothing about that doesn't interest me at all 
And I had the hypothesis that the reason that something doesn't interest me is because I don't know anything about it. So pretty randomly, I chose two topics that I didn't know much anything about, to be honest. One of them was technology and the other one was business. And I just figured out I, I want to find a study program that would somehow combine the two and ended up uh, studying engineering at, at Aalto University, which is a, a large university here in um, Helsinki, Finland. That is quite a switch to go from classical music, but I guess it's because you had this interest in math. Were you always good at math or you just had the interest and decided to do something about it? I, I guess I've been lucky in the sense that certain things have clicked easily for me and others are very hard for me. So things that have been easy for me have to do with things where I can go with my intuition, such as classical music. Also mathematics for me is a lot of lot about intuition. I don't know if that makes sense for everyone, but for me, it's always been very intuitive how mathematics works. So I guess it's fair to say that it's been relatively easy for me. But what has not been easy for me has been to understand how how humans really work together. How does the capitalistic system really work? What is money in the end of the day? These kinds of things I was really struggling. And to be honest, I still have no idea if I have any clue how this world really works, but I'm I'm endlessly curious about it. And that's why I'm also now building something that tries to make sense of it. Do you feel like music and math, somehow that combination has helped you in your career, in your journey to becoming a McKinsey consultant and then an entrepreneur? I feel that the number one asset for me as a tech entrepreneur these days is it's not the professional training. So I was a kid basically when I was studying music, but it's my musical training. It's just those moments when you're, I don't know, eight years old, you go on stage, you have no idea what you're doing and just learn to slowly work with your own ability to concentrate, your own ability to trust in yourself, your own ability to tap into your intuition, your ability to handle things that are happening in your own body when you are nervous or something. So these kinds of that strength that I have that I built when I was a kid and doing music and obviously first being terrified about performing, then loving it and everything in between. That same strength is something that I tap into every day as a tech entrepreneur, whether it's and not just like going on stage, but also just keeping my head together in this crazy profession. (laughs) I know it's so inspiring to hear you say that because actually I've seen my daughter grow. She was very much interested, like her thing was music. She did eight years of classical music and continues to do lots of different types of music. And I've now seen her go from loving music, which she still does, but now having such a love for mathematics and the sciences and physics and just seeing her grow into those things on her own and discovering those has been so joyful to see. And it it sounds like you had a similar journey. Um, So, okay, so you went to music school, then you ended up in university because you liked math, you were interested in technology and business. And from there, you got hired by McKinsey and worked for McKinsey for a long time, correct? Yeah, actually, I ended up studying it because I was not yet interested in it. I have no idea what really tech or business meant. So I started studying information networks at Aalto University, really cool, groundbreaking or pioneering engineering program that combines basically teaching kids to code a lot of things about computers and algorithms, but also at the same time teaching us aesthetics, philosophy, communications, uh, sociology, and a lot of other sort of interdisciplinary or or the whole, whole forming like a really nice interdisciplinary study program. 
pretty soon I realized that the code part algorithms, everything was basically just math. They were a good friend, like a warm and fussy thing from the past almost. But the business part, I still didn't understand. I really couldn't quite understand how decision-making globally works. And then I asked some older and wiser people. And now you have to bear in mind that this was the mind space of, I don't know, 21-year-old Anu in, in Aalto University. So I asked like a couple of students that were like two years ahead of me, what should I do if I want to understand the capitalistic system better than what I'm now being learning from the courses here at university? And they told us that you should definitely work for this company called McKinsey, that they work at, they work globally for large corporations. So I applied for an internship, was really lucky and got in, spent that summer working in the McKinsey Paris office, and then joined after graduation as well for about three years. So not that long, I guess, in, in the life of a young person that, of course, felt like internally, like 100% of my professional career. But now looking back, it was a relatively short period of time, but a very adventurous and fun one. Yeah. And how did you go from being at McKinsey and to wanting to start your own initiative? I think it was relatively clear to me almost before joining or starting to work in consulting already during my studies, it was pretty clear to me what the main sort of uh, problem that just couldn't leave me alone. That was almost like haunting me was which is that despite all of those amazing advancements that humanity has made in technology, mathematics, and all, all these different fields, and we are increasingly and, and we are growing our abilities in measuring all sorts of things, relevant and irrelevant, to be honest, and we're able to produce so much data on all sorts of things. How come is it that we still have almost no clue of what is actually the holistic impact of a company existing? I... So I started to wonder about this question actually already in high school. I was just ma mainly then from a more conceptual level, looking at large companies like, okay, so there's Nokia, which is which was then and is, is of course, uh, still a big deal in here in Finland. What about other organizations like the Red Cross or the Ministry of Health versus then companies like Spotify or Tesla or Siemens or Apple? What is What do they, what is actually the holistic value creation that they create. So what are the resources that go in? What has come out? And what are the best metrics for us as humanity to understand what kind of organizational behavior we should be encouraging? And I asked a lot around, I heard people talk about valuation, obviously looked into it. That's also a part of one of the uh, great things about working in management consulting, getting to learn about this terminology. I pretty soon realized that it is a very narrow, there's a couple of narrow lenses that we have on value creation of companies. There's obviously the financial value creation and then there are a couple of these little bit sporadic metrics for then the environmental impact side. There's like CO2, something on something else, but nothing is really trying to explain how a company as a machine works. So if you look at it as, let's take a really simple example, there's a company that employs 100 people, uses X million of capital investments, and then uses certain natural resources and let's say causes X tons of CO2 equivalent emissions. And then... What really comes out? What is the output of that? Let's say, is that output a plastic fork? Is it an IT consulting service? Is it energy to, to fuel our schools and hospitals and homes and whatnot? What is it really that comes out? And, and how should we understand that equation better? Because let's face it, the resources are, are not infinite, not just the natural resources, but also stuff like human resources. Humanity has it doesn't have an unlimited capacity to solve all the problems that we're facing. So I was really interested in understanding this holistic, understanding that, it, of course, this is a ridiculously large question, but really trying to understand what kind of pragmatic solutions exist. And I started to look into externalities in the academic world, 
I was lucky to have some great professors guiding me to look into certain kind of research, but I couldn't quite find what I was looking for. I found stuff that were focused on certain negative externalities and measuring their size. But what bothered me was that if you found, let's say, the most emitting industries or the industries with the biggest negative impacts in area X, they were typically industries that then had a huge societal value, let's say, for example, energy. Obviously, it is naive to think that we just couldn't have energy companies. So I couldn't find anything that would really balance the both sides. And that that drove me really obsessed. I started to look into it, build something first on pen and paper, then needed my friend the computer, then needed my friends the really way better data scientists and computer scientists than me. And gradually, it led to the founding of the Upright Project. Tell me a little bit more about what the Upright Project does, maybe with a really simple example, because I know that the question you're tackling, like you said, very massive, and you're looking at all these industries from a top-down perspective to understand what their existence means. But is it possible for you to take a very simple example to explain what Upright does? Sure. So let's take a really, let's say this is a, a bit of a naive example, but maybe this gets us going. Let's take a tobacco company, for example. So what Upright does and what we're interested in is not so much what kind of an ESG report is a tobacco company producing. We're not that interested even in many of the internal things that they're gradually doing to whether they're putting together employee well-being programs or looking into job safety or starting to disclose more or something like that. What we're really interested in is that what kind of a machine is that tobacco company when you look at the holistic resources of the world? So what are really the biggest negative impacts and what are the biggest positive impacts? For tobacco, it's pretty clear that the biggest negative impacts have to do with health. So what we're really interested in understanding is what are really the drivers? Let's look at lung disease, obviously, lung cancer and other lung diseases that, that tobacco causes. We're interested in understanding what are the what is the magnitude of the impact. So we use, for example, in this case for, for health, we use definition by the World Health Organization, WHO. We use disability adjusted life years, DALYs, and estimations of what is the part in total that the tobacco, the top, uh, what is the total amount of disability adjusted life years that the tobacco industry as a whole produces. And then we try to understand what part of that impact can be allocated to a single tobacco company using, for example, market size and production volume information. And then on the plus side, we try to understand what are the largest positive impacts for tobacco. It's typically has to do with taxes and jobs and such. But, and then if we look at a maybe a bit more positive example, something like a green tech startup that has just been started in Norway or Portugal or something, we're not that interested in how much resources that team of I don't know, 13 people is now putting into reporting or even ESG policies, but we are really interested in what is the product that they're building. We're interested in understanding if that if they actually succeed in doing what they are saying that they are uh, aiming at doing, what is the potential value creation equation? Uh, one way of putting it is asking, what do you have to believe in order for this company to produce more value than it destroys? And that's, this obviously goes into very, this is mathematically <laughs> the most difficult problem I've ever even tried to think about. But also this, of, of course, touches to many sort of black spots for information for humanity. And I feel that's one of the important things for us to highlight. What are the areas where we don't even know what how things look like? For some things like tobacco, it is pretty clear. It's not because of lack of scientific knowledge that we wouldn't know. It is because of the basic practices that we've just had for looking at companies. We haven't really asked that question, which I think is sometimes 
a bit mind-boggling for many industries. So we're like the common sense nerdy engineers asking the not so much maybe the questions that the marketing departments of the companies want to be highlighting, but really the brutal, simple facts behind different business models and industries. And you sell your model and your data to investors? Is that your primary customer? Yeah. So what really drives us is to create this model, is to, is to build this information and then build different ways for stakeholders in the private markets to use this data. Obviously, that's the mechanism through which we have our mission, which is to basically create concrete incentives for companies and investors to optimize their net impact. So where the money comes in, how this is in a company, we mainly work with institutional investors, as well as also corporations who use our data to, whether it's the more mundane level of basically just complying with many of the new regulations that are uh, demanding them to uh, measure their seismic impact, whether it's the SFDR, Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation for institutional investors, asset managers, private equity, venture capital investors, pension funds or whether it's the CSRD regulation then for the corporate side that just kicked in big time in the beginning of January this year. Look, net impact and ESG, these are these are concepts and goals that have been around now for many years. There are a lot of companies that are working to provide this information. So how did you go about getting your first few customers and how did you convince them that what you are providing is superior or better yeah, I think it's really interesting what's happening right now in the market. There's a lot of great solutions that are essentially some sort of ESG or impact data software, which is basically software making it easier to manage this data, to collect it, to distribute it and so on. That's not really where my passion is, to be honest. I feel that we as humanity are still so far away from having high quality understanding, even agreeing on the questions to be asked, that I don't think this is yet the largest problem to be fixed. I think there's there can easily be a phenomenon where you, part, part of my direct language, there's like a garbage in, garbage out situation. If you just think that by sending out questionnaires to different parts of the organization, asking them, how important is climate change to you? How do you estimate? I get these questions from our investors as well for me to like estimate water usage in our office. I hardly think it has anything to do with the largest impact that my company can have in positive or negative direction to the world. Um, and I think what really needs to happen is the capitalist system slowly starting to agree on what are really the biggest questions. What are the things that move the needle in terms of understanding what kinds of companies, what kinds of business models, what kinds of industries actually create value? What kind of industries will survive the next 10 years of increased scrutiny, not just from investors, but also employees, customers, regulators, and so on. The way to cut through the noise or to maybe also like explain what we're doing, our approach is completely different. So when we win customers, it's in good and bad, it's for something completely different than what they're buying from anywhere else. Maybe one comment to your question about there's a lot of data out there. I actually don't agree. I think there's an alarming, there, there's a lot of like th stuff that looks like data. There's a lot of numbers <laughs> in, in a lot of complicated software. But the actual, if you look at, okay, please tell me, what is the holistic impact of Nokia or Tesla or Siemens or GE or uh, Apple? There's actually alarmingly small amount of totally independent views, totally independent, so solid science on this. And this is something that I started to look for. I thought I would look for the 10 best answers, try to understand what they're doing, and then try to see if I want to contribute to one of them or build something on my own. And I was alarmed to see that there was mainly... There's in the ESG rating market, there's obviously MSCI ESG, which is the largest market right. player and has been around for a long time. Their question is almost completely different than, than what we're asking, which is basically, 
to what extent a company is is complying to a bunch of ways of acting, basically asking what is the likelihood that there will be financial risk for an investor from certain areas called ES and G. It doesn't even try to cover the holistic spectrum of value creation and so on. And there's a whole body of literature on that, so I won't go deeper into that. So our question about what is the holistic impact of this company? What are the resources it uses? What are the uh, positive and negative outcomes that it produces? This is a question that I actually feel there is almost, I almost like, I, I keep saying this, but I really hope we would get more competition. I really hope more nerds out there that have the resilience and the sort of obsession and are just the right amount crazy would start to try to answer this question. So there's a lot of stuff that looks like data, but actual answers for this question we feel pretty alone often in this space, to be honest. But how to go through the noise? I, I guess that was also like, and how to explain all of this. I think you have to just make that question seen. You have to find the right corporation investors that are starting to ask this question, that are starting to realize that this is actually the existential question for their strategy, for their future profits, for their ability to retain their talent and so on. So how what was the reaction when you went to investors or went to corporate who did you target first and why? So my expectation here was that no one in their right mind is going to pay me money to tell them obvious things they already know about their business and stuff that is very often also slightly inconvenient news and is not aligned with their marketing messages. But I've been really, really happy to find out in the past, especially actually increasing in the past couple of years, that there are so many executives out there so who we typically sell to, it depends a lot on the sort of uh, size of the company. If it's a smaller company, it's typically basically the executive team that is looking into, okay, what's our value creation story? What are the facts to back it up? How do we build this to our so-called sustainability ESG reporting, to our investor relations, to our strategy, to our CapEx planning, and so on? And then if it's a larger corporation, there's typically a very professional sustainability organization, and it's typically the head of that organization that is then deciding whether to use upright or not. There are so many professionals that are also in their own and their professional, they are frustrated with having been sold these easy fixes that just don't work. They're saying that, okay, what's the fun and easy breezy way to solve climate change? It doesn't exist. <laughs> if, if it did, this problem would not be here. So they're also looking into more honest and, and I, guess, I guess the ones who, who then decide to work with us are typically want to find this third party objective a little bit nerdy, engineering way of just looking at their business. They're interested in seeing how it looks like through the x-ray. They're interested in understanding and using the different tools that we have for understanding that if you change this in your business, how will it impact your, whether it's your EU taxonomy alignment or your alignment with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals or a, a number of these metrics, depending a little bit of, of what their environment is. But I guess they're in the background, they're really interested in understanding how do we build a business that, well creates more value than it destroys. Very interesting. It's good to see that some of the these companies you've been able to identify have actually been very open and want to understand the overall impact and so are very receptive to what you're building. That's good news. So tell me, how have, are you thinking about building the brand of Upright so that more and more companies and investors would know about it and come and ask for this information? And how is that different to other spaces, like not sustainability when it comes to building a brand of trust that the market likes? 
First of all, I think building your brand is probably one of the most fun parts of this profession of be being an entrepreneur. I can be really tricky, but it's also really a lot of fun because it basically just puts together what you're building and what that message is and what that message is in a certain point of time, in a certain evolution phase of what's happening around. When I started Billnix model six years ago, basically everyone around me was like, just like, what impact data? What is that even? And the question, I got a lot of feedback that, hey, that's nice and everything, but there's no way ever that this will be something that is on the boards of the executive teams and the boards of directors. And as we all know, whether the companies like it or not, it is now basically being pushed on their tables very heavily. When it comes to building a brand, and this is something that is almost, it's for, for me, it's almost like the, the candy part of being an entrepreneur. So maybe just about the modus operandi at Upright. So the first couple of years, we were purely in almost this stealth mode, just nerd building a model. We did zero marketing. I had absolutely no one doing anything in it. And we had this idea that if we don't succeed in building a model that can basically, which is a thinking tool, which is a way to make the assumptions that investors are making every day, making them visible. If we don't succeed in building this tool, we're just another team waving our hands and saying that the world needs to be saved. If we do succeed in building this pretty hugely ambitious simulation of the global private sector, this impact data engine, then it's pretty limitless what we can do with it. And that's why, that's why I didn't really worry about brand at all, because I wanted to first just, just build something. And I, I know, I don't think we're very widely known anywhere, but in the pockets that we're, where we are slightly known, I often run into this, what are you really like, what are, is, is it an academic endeavor? Why on earth would you share this data for free? So we, we have this policy of basically sharing everything we learn completely openly on our platform. We, today we have more than 10,000 company profiles fully uh, openly available, which is quite different from what our competition is doing. And so on. And, and, and many people ask, what are you doing? What's the catch? And so on. I think now that we're looking into really starting to, now I can like, now that we've managed to build a model that makes a su surprising lot of sense, we are having many customers that have been with us for the very beginning. They are very strong sponsors. We are starting to see that the data actually works. It works for their, whether it's their everyday needs to comply with the regulation, but also the more interesting strategic business questions and so on. So now we're really looking into what is the brand that we need to build. And, and something that I find really fascinating in the sustainability field is that this is um, a typical B2B SaaS business, maybe struggles with the fact that their product is not necessarily provoking a lot of emotions. It can also be seen, very often be seen as slightly boring as well. And they can struggle with that in brand building. And our technology as well is very uh, complex. And I think for a majority of people, it can also feel very boring when I start to explain what really goes on in there. But... The main question that we are dealing with is something that leaves almost no one who is alive and more than five years old today on this planet that would leave them cold and without emotions. And, and that is both a huge opportunity and sometimes a huge burden because it basically means that whenever we say anything with our data, it, it can provoke a lot of intellectual discussion. It also provokes a lot of emotions. And I also struggle with those emotions every day. I don't, what is the right message to be sending the consumers that are buying from these companies to the employees that are working for these companies, to the investors that are investing in them and so on. And since this topic is, it is, it's quite a heavy message sometimes that we're building. Yeah. Like I'm saying that, hey, the company that you've spent the last 43 years on, that also your mother worked for and blah, blah, blah. Actually, when you look at it through the newest science, it is slightly net negative what the outcome of that company existing is. And you can put more emphasis on tax dollars or something like that, but hey, the health 
health implications of this company are X or something like that. It's a pretty brutal message. And that's something that we are working with every day. And of course, on a personal level, it can be very heavy, but also on a professional level. I've seen that professional investors can feel very strongly about the companies that they've invested in. And yeah, uh, yeah, that's something to be taken into account. So if I had to recap what you said, what you're working on by definition has a very strong emotional connection. So actually there's a lot of material there to build a brand, but you have to be sensitive about how you do it because the emotion isn't always just positive or just negative. It can be quite strong one way or the other for every company that that you are touching. But it sounds to me like your journey of building a brand has just started in terms of how you are going to position yourself in the market. Would that be accurate? Yeah, we basically just started to even do this on a large scale. We wanted to first make sure that our very unique bit of an outlier approach is actually something that we can fully stand behind that our currently roughly 200 customers can really fully stand behind. And what I meant with those emotions was maybe more about you have to be responsible because it's very easy to just do cheap emotions in this mm. space. You can just, what will your grandchildren think about when they know this? And this is really, this can be very it doesn't pass my integrity test. It's It can be sometimes a really cheap way to just get attention. So the question is, if you want to really, for me, what, what is the brand really? It's, it, the brand is a vehicle. It's a tool for our mission to create real incentives for companies to optimize their net impact, for them to, for it to financially make more sense for them to build net positive businesses and than, than net negative ones. So I think here we have to hold ourselves to pretty high standards, also in terms of brand building and marketing. We can't just sell easy answers because they don't exist. That is a simple fact when it comes to this very complex topic. And that I find really fascinating. I find it a big opportunity for us, but also just the right right amount of intellectually difficult. I love that sense of responsibility that you have. And I love the way you connected brand and brand building as a means to an end, which is really about your mission. I think a lot of us, especially in marketing, have lost that connection. And we just think of brand building as we need to build a brand, but it's really just a means to an end. So thank you for sharing that. You mentioned something about how people continue to ask you, what exactly do you do? Is this like an academic project? Is it a research project? I'm curious, what was the decision-making framework you used to say, you know what, I'm not going to do upright as an academic endeavor or a nonprofit endeavor, but actually I'm going to make it a for-profit initiative. What was the thought process for getting to that conclusion? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. For me, it was, I didn't end up as a tech entrepreneur deciding that I want to be a tech entrepreneur or or founder in, in tech or whatever. It was mainly, it was something that I ended up at, ended up at basically based on exclusion. So what has driven me to do this is this problem really, is this idea of this question that I think is lacking, this question that I think is not being asked enough, that is the most relevant question. And this question that basically defines whether any of this ESG sustainability impact, whatever noise (laughs) is relevant at all. And building this understanding, basically a tool for humanity to understand that if we were to pull together all the available knowledge that we have accumulated, mainly codified in the form of science, but also uh, uh, some other public databases and so on. What can we, what can we really gather from companies existing? I started to look at this question for a long time. I thought this sounds like an academic endeavor. Perhaps I, for a long time, I also tried to 
look at it and build it into one or not a long time, but I played with the idea during the spring when I was putting the, the project together. I unfortunately found out that I'm way too impatient for the academic world. I didn't quite, I, I felt that my approach was maybe too much of an activist one for the academic world. I wasn't so much looking into sort of finding a consortium to agree on the perfect framework. I wasn't really interested in the framework at all. I really wanted to see that if we just start producing this data, if we start pushing it in the faces of real investors, if we start pushing it in the face of real actors in the private market, what starts to happen? What I was just very impatient to see that. So that's what basically ruled out the academic endeavor option. Then I thought for a long time that it should probably be some kind of a foundation or a nonprofit. I used to run for a short period of time a nonprofit for a couple of years before this, that this sounds like a something that should be a commons, a little bit like what we're doing right now. We are sharing it openly with really no, no ulterior motives in mind. But I pretty soon realized that if I really want to basically say that companies need to go through this new pressure test, that companies need to answer to these new types of requirements and companies need to basically align their net positive impact with their profits, with their financial profits, that I'm just an imposter if I don't also do it as a company. If, if This is basically my challenge to also do this as a so-called normal for-profit company. So that's what led me to choose this legal entity type. And I've been really, it, it's really interesting because I get asked a lot that how can you, so what is it that you do? Are you trying to save the world? Or are you trying to make money? What's the catch? What's the, why are you organizing it this way? But I feel it's given us also a lot of freedom. I, I actually think that working in the private markets is a very agile, free way to work. In the beginning, I didn't have to, I didn't start with, I also haven't gone the traditional VC route of first looking for money and then starting to spend it. I basically just sold a couple of first things with whatever little abilities I had, some McKinsey consultant <laughs> yeah. legacy and, and just a few, just the ability to think smartly with a couple of organizations, what they could need. And basically just at the, when I could sell more, I could hire another person. And that's how we've been growing the team quite organically. But I feel that it's also been very healthy for us to be needing to be on the skins of the customers to make sure that while we are at the same time solving a sort of intellectual and philosophically a ridiculously ambitious question, at the same time, we need to make sure that it's somehow in sync with what's really going on with the companies and investors. And what they need. Yeah. That it's value to them at the end of the day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise it's not used and it doesn't have any impact. Yeah. I have so many more questions I can ask you, Anu, but we're getting close to time. I have one last question and then I have a fun rapid round. My last question is, you keep talking about this as a project, upright project. And I'm curious why it's called a project, because to me, a project has a beginning and an end. Yes, that's probably the main, whenever I talk to someone who is better than me at branding and communication and everything, the main challenge I get, like, hey, why the project? Should we drop the project? I get that internally also. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of the things where I'm just a very stubborn person. For me, it was very important that when I started building this, I don't start to build like an institution for myself or institution for anyone. I don't build just a castle that needs to be here for generations, but I try to solve a problem. And when that problem is solved, it's done. And it may take five years, 10 years, or even 50 years, but still it's something that there's a problem. We need to fix it. And when it's fixed, we also decide that okay then it's there is there's another need for these resources our time and passion and capital and whatnot and then we will uh, deploy it elsewhere so it's very important for me 
me mentally that this is a project, even though its length might be a lot longer than you might first think when you hear the word project. That's a very interesting way of thinking about it. It's nice because you won't have false incentives to keep the company going because you're just trying to make more money. But at the same time, the reason people have a company and think longevity is because they want to build foundation so that it can provide value for a long time as the world changes. So it's an interesting idea. I know you've given it a lot of thought. And um, in the last few minutes, I wanted to ask you a few questions that have more to do with you as a person. And I usually start with, what's your favorite book? What's a book that's made an impression on you that you'd like to share with others? Oh, dear. So many books come to mind. Okay, I'm going to go with, I'm just going to go with whatever came to my mind when you said the word book, although I could probably answer this with at least 20, 20 different books. For some reason, when you said the word book, I thought about a book that I've recently used a lot in building my, building the organization, which is the nonviolent communication. And actually it's a couple of different books, but I think it's definitely an amazing resource for, for in general, just like running companies, just in general, looking at how people should communicate with one another. So that's going to be my answer for today. Okay. And what's your favorite European city? Favorite European city? Oh my, okay. Okay, this is a really tough one, but I'm going to have to go once again, just with my first. This is not going to be boring, but it's going to have to be Rome because I just can't get over it. It's Rome. Yes. Yep. Because of the history there. The atmosphere. Whenever I go there, I just feel good. No matter how crappy I felt before, just the houses, they've been around for such yeah. a long time. Streets, everything. You just feel, you feel in small in such a good way that I love it. Yeah, I love Rome too. What about a productivity tip? or a hack or a tool, something that keeps you productive? What keeps me productive is that on a regular basis, I go to the forest where I just, I don't do anything systematic or ambitious. I just basically walk around, sit on a rock, walk if I feel like walking, sit if I feel like sitting and listen to the forest for some answers. And whenever I come out, I just am so much more equipped to do whatever it is that I have to do. And maybe most importantly, to drop all the rest, which is typically 80% of our every, things that are around us are just noise that we should intend to. So your productivity uh, tip is to be zen and to be with nature and focus on what's priority. Yeah, go to ahead. a forest. That helps yeah. you understand that <laughs> of the okay. things around you are just noise. It gives you yeah. a lot of time. So true. And a quote that you personally relate to or that you share or you say often to yourself or to your employees oh dear okay a quote I love this okay once again going with intuition this is going to be very weird this collection of these things but when I was first starting upright we didn't first have an office and we used this co-working space and there was this one piece of paper in the kitchen in a weird sort of level of the feet so I don't know if it was kind of left there by accident or something but I always come back to it whenever I'm struggling as a leader, whenever I feel like, oh, damn, I can never make this work or whenever I feel inferior or something like that, which is a simple quote. I don't know by whom it is. It can be a random person who wrote it in the co-working space, but it basically says, you cannot make everyone happy. You are not pizza. And I think about that often when <laughs> I feel like that the data that I'm producing is just making people mad. The choices that I'm <laughs> making are never going to make everyone happy. So then I remember that I'm not pizza. I cannot make everyone happy. And that is life. 
<laughs> That's the funniest quote I've heard. I love it. It's so simple and basic, but I think it hits the point. Thank you so much, Anu, for being on this podcast today morning with me. And I really enjoyed learning a bit more about Upright Project and the fascinating question that you're trying to answer and look forward to hearing more from you in the years to come. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and I'm waiting to review the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.